You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? Your guide on the side. And a lot of us end up spending our entire life searching for what we expect instead of what has actually been given to us. Dr. Matt Townsend. I was, was in college. I took a public speaking class and sat there with 20 really nervous college students as they were, you know, we we knew we had 10 speeches that we had to give. Ugh, so scary. But I thought, and I did this, uh, I did this young. I think I was 18, 19 years old. And I realized at a young age that, holy cow, I can, boy, I can do this. I can give a speech that's uh, motivating and exciting and and I'm telling you, it changed me because now all of a sudden I knew I could, wor- I could work the words. In fact, my father-in-law always told me I had the gift of gab. And when he said it, it always sounded like offensive, like, oh, it sounds like I'm just a blabbermouth. But um, then uh, I, I learned to write. I learned to uh, do other things. I, I started learning radio even back then in the day and uh, doing broadcasting. And then I became a speaker. And notice I, my entire profession is around wordsmithing and the confidence to do that. Now I, I'm not – I usually don't get very nervous uh, speaking in front of large groups. But all of a sudden I realize that my confidence comes from my ability to carry myself. People might even think I'm a leader even though I don't pay much attention to detail like that. But notice to have – uh, uh, to have the ability to speak is a gift. To have the ability to listen, in my belief, is even a higher gift. So if you can actually sit down and assimilate and take in what someone's saying, that's even pa- more powerful, I think, than the ability to speak. But most people don't take a listening class. Think about it. Have you? Have you ever taken a class to learn to listen to another person? But even more importantly than listening would be the, the ability to actually be impressed or moved or changed by the pain or suffering of another person and let it actually influence you. Now, nobody's taken that class. I have couples that come to learn how to listen to one another and communicate, but there's this magic moment I found in every real, I call it a real conversation, when we actually get real with each other because we're recognizing each other's emotions, we're exploring each other's story or stories, we're attending to each other's pain, and we're lifting each other. That's a real conversation. Recognizing, exploring, uh, attending, and lifting the conversation. But if I can do that in this magical moment, and I was able to do it last night with some of my clients, they're hearing their partner is hurting, they're hearing that they're suffering, and then I just ask them something simple like, what does it feel like to know that your partner in life feels so unappreciated by you? And when somebody actually lets that deeper thought in and they, they get emotional, like it feels horrible. I don't want her to feel that way. And once they have kind of the empathy about that, it starts to create a change. So tell her what you feel. And then when he starts to emote and share how he feels bad that he makes her feel that bad, it creates a very real moment. It's powerful. So make sure as you're trying to be a better communicator that you're not just doing it to manipulate everyone else in the world, 
but let's do it to understand everybody. And let's not just understand the words they're saying. Let's understand the emotion that they're sharing. Make sense? It's just connection, 101. It's how we connect to our fellow human beings here on this great big ball of mud. We call Earth. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Finding enough time to sit down and read with our kids seems like a major difficulty. Isn't it funny where we, um, we know what's essential in our lives? We, we say we know what's essential. But if you knew that you could turbocharge your child's brain by reading with them every day for 30 minutes. Oh, boy, that's a lot of time, Matt. I mean, I mean, what about The Bachelor? When would we watch The Bachelor? And I don't want to make anybody feel guilty, except I know I don't uh, read it with my kids like I need to. And um, it's, it's hard. And yet it's so valuable. I think it's easy with the first kid. Our first child, we read, everybody read to my, my first child. My second child even got some attention. But my fifth and sixth children, eh, half the time we wonder if they're even home. And so just think about it. A little coach's corner. One of the things I wanted to talk about is it's uh, in the end, it really is the little things that might come from something like reading that might create a little more discipline in your child, might allow them the the tenacity, the ability to, to put their phone down and to actually seek after something um, that, that might bring more insight, more understanding. It might also help them obviously uh, – with their ability to focus, their ability to to focus their attention on something. So it is a simple, simple little solution that might go a very, very long way. And it also could be, I believe, integrated into what we call family rituals. Maybe part of the ritual would be simply how we decide as a family to go to bed. And, um, you know, if we could have a little bit of time, family time, uh, doing whatever, whether it's reading or praying or talking. Um, we also have talked about on the show over and over the power of the family meal. And if you families that eat together and have a consistent dinner time where everyone's home and they, they spend that time eating without their cell phones on, just the, the wonderful blessings that are there um, as far as the child's ability to feel like they're a member of a group and a team or their family their ability to um, say no to other things uh, and, and live a healthier life, have more self-discipline. Lots of benefits come out of just the family meal. But what about the family reading time? I mean, if you have younger kids, maybe it's time to open up a series of books. And as a family, let's read that series together. The benefit is if you, if you can just get everybody hooked into a story, we could turn technology off and spend a half hour uh, a night reading that. Or you can even make uh, any kind of story time more exciting or fun by having people play parts, giving everybody a different role to play, or acting out the scene, or spending a little time before you start this next uh, section that you're reading and talking about what we're going to read, then read it, and then spend some time talking about what we, what we read. Another rule I've seen with my kids is keeping it short. I have found a 15-minute to 20-minute lesson is so much more valuable than a 40-minute lesson where they're frustrated the entire time. So if I could give them time to wiggle and fun and have fun and wrestle and do what they need, and then we throw together a really solid 15-minute moment, there's power in that. 
Uh, a lot of times, too, I've even I've even just seen it in teaching in church or teaching a youth group somewhere. If I can just let them kind of relax and be themselves for half of the time that we're together, they will generally give me the other half to influence them deeply. And you'll you'll know you're influencing them because they'll be engaged. But let's remember, family is it's about really it's about this ability to connect and relate to each other. It's about allowing the family to go where the family needs to go. And sometimes as parents we're so dead set on it having to be our agenda, our time frame. Um, instead of being a little bit more dynamic. And if we could teach our kids the power and the ability to handle dynamic times, we might set them up for success. Not everything goes on schedule. Not everything is perfectly black and white. And this might be a wonderful time to create some more resilience in your kids as you talk about the less black and white scenarios of life. Anyway, it's just reading time, right? Or it's some type of family time. I challenge all of us to, uh, to find that time today. And let's, let's, let's see if we can't habitualize it by making it a time that we can work together every day at the same time. Nine o'clock every night, we're going to have family time or 9.30, when we go to bed, it's going to, we're going to go down and, and we're going to read a book together this way. It's just, it's basics, right? Family Basics 101. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Do you, do you evaluate your impact um, and your ability to give by simply what you have? Or when somebody needs something, do you just immediately step toward that person and know that we'll find something, we'll figure it out? And or do you just oh, I, I can't give because I don't have cash or I can't give because, you know, I'm not in a place to do that. Every single one of us has something unique and amazing and impressive, honestly, that we could be offering the world. And the abundant mentality just simply allows us to start seeing that there are other solutions. A great uh, example that I've seen, it happened just recently as I was sitting down with clients um, where, uh, a, you know, a, a daughter was getting uh, married. She has a, a man in her life. She found him as she was away from the family and, you know, found this great guy. Well, the parents don't like the guy. And, I mean, by the way, I get this example so many times a month, three or four times a month. I will have parents call me saying, we've got to figure this out. I don't want her to marry this person or I don't want my daughter to marry this guy. Um, but in the end, what happened um, is they come in with this dichotomy where it's either they marry or uh, they don't. Either mom and dad win or uh, I win. And in the end, what I found is why dichotomize it? Why is the choice an either or? Why aren't there so many other ways that we could look at this? And um, for example, what we could talk about is how can we help mom and dad understand why this person is so powerful and awesome that you'd want to marry him? How do we, as mom and dad, relax and recognize that if your daughter is going to make a decision to bring someone into the family, that um, it's going to happen? So at some point, you're going to need to understand, care, love, and allow people in. And why not Start that now. But part of it is because we have a scarce mind, a scarcity mindset where, well, I've only got one daughter 
and uh, this isn't the guy for her. And so when we start with the scarcity mindset, then all we can have are scarce thoughts. And then all that creates are scarce, fearful feelings. And then from this fearful feelings, all we can do is act out and be angry and, you know, do everything we can to stop the relationship. And then what we're becoming is someone that's angry, small, petty, not who we want to be in life. And that impacts what we're becoming. And then what we're becoming over time reinforces our thinking. Life is short. I'm losing my daughter. Now my daughter won't even talk to me. Obviously, it's this guy's fault because the guy, uh, she used to always talk to me until the guy came around. But there is abundance. And abundance doesn't mean that it always goes the way we think it's going to go. But abundance means I can love you. I can understand you. I can care about you. And I can also choose to listen to my parents and and take in to the fact that they have a whole, a whole other view here. They're seeing things I'm not seeing. Abundance might say that we don't need to hurry and get married, but maybe what we ought to do is slow down the process and get as many people on board as we can. And uh, abundance would say that we all ought to give it a fair try and um, on and on and on. But whatever we start with, whatever paradigm we begin with, abundance or scarce, is going to set up how you play out the entire situation. And it will amazingly self-fulfill and either create more abundance in your life or more scarcity in your life. It may not, by the way, be the life you thought you were going to have. That's the amazing thing about being abundant is you may realize that I didn't even know I had all of these other resources at my disposal and now I can use those. And it may be a richer life, different than you thought but richer in a variety of other ways. So just know abundance is a part of everything we do and it's natural and it will create over time, I believe, a healthier effect. I think I think your God has abundant ability and resources, right? And so if that's the case, then as human beings, the more abundant we can be, the, the better off we can be. It doesn't mean too we still can't have, you know um, – Boundaries, it doesn't mean we still can't have rules because we can. And inside of those rules, there are an, a plethora and abundance of solutions that we can still institute to, uh, to make change happen and make things happen. Anyway, powerful stuff, folks. Abundance versus scarcity. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, as you watch the Olympics uh, and you see all of these team sports, you think, man, they're killing it. They sure play well together. Wouldn't it be great to work that well in your own workplace? The, you know, it's uh, it's not an easy thing to create a strong team, a powerful team, but because, uh, you know, there's always a star here or there. There's some that like the meeting, some that don't, some that want to talk, some that don't. How do you build a team that can uh, be a high-performing organization and yet uh, especially get results that that we have to get? In the end, it's not easy. So we brought in uh, a pro to talk to us about it. Don Yeager joins us, and Don is an award-winning keynote speaker, business leadership coach, and eight-time New York Times bestselling author. 
and a longtime associate editor, editor for Sports Illustrated. Today he's here with us to talk about 16 things high-performing organizations do differently. Don Yeager, thank you so much for being with us. Matt, thank you for having me. I appreciate it very much. You bet. What a great um, time, really, to be talking about teams. And you see it. I, like I, I was watching the other day water polo, which I don't know what it is, but every time I watch it, I feel like I can't breathe. <laughs> and I don't know what that that's all about, but I'll check with my doctor. What what is it really that makes a good team? Is can a leader make that big of a difference? Well, yes, absolutely. I think that there's there's no question that when you can when when you can set a bar for people and when they can appreciate that and and that then the leader by the way does not have to be the manager, the owner, the the leader can be can be one of those on the team. Uh, right. but when when someone steps in and says this is this is the environment we're going to create here. This is the way we're going to lead and the way we're going to the way we're going to uh, this is what will be valued here and here's and here's how I'm going to prove it because every time you do this I'm going to value you. I'm going to acknowledge you. I'm going to uh it, it, I'm going to engage with you. If you can create that kind of environment where people appreciate uh, something bigger than themselves, right? That's what a team really is. Right. The ability to get a group of people to, to contribute to something that they couldn't contribute, they couldn't, they couldn't achieve on their own. What, what are uh, some of the things you're seeing uh, in the Olympics or even just, you know, as, as countries organizing the Olympics? Anything standing out for you that, that seems to kind of stand out as a, as a strong principle for leadership? Sure, I don't. I think the number one answer. So, uh, the book that you're referencing is is based on uh, about 110 interviews, uh, 110 conversations with the best team builders in the United States. Right, uh, team builders that I've had the chance to work with, and then another dozen uh, business leaders who are leaders of exceptional organizations, large companies that are very that are that are um, that are continuously successful. And the number one answer that comes up when you ask them, how do you create an environment that allows you to win year after year, it's that you have to have a sense of purpose and that, that you collectively, you as a team, need to know who you're in service of and know why it matters. And, um, and so the Olympics are the perfect place for that discussion because for many uh, on these teams, and especially in a lot of other countries, being part of the national team, being representing your country, uh, it's the highest honor. It's the greatest thing you can achieve, right? That that walk through the tunnel into the opening ceremonies of the Olympics is the highlight of of all you've achieved, all you've worked to achieve in your entire life. Mm. So interestingly, that this concept that you're, you know, this idea of what can you what can you go? The Olympics are a perfect place to see it because there's so many great teams there that are built around a concept of we are in service of something bigger than us. Right. Yeah. We are. We are. Uh, and, and 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 nationalism is a great place to do it. Right. Um, if you believe your company is involved in uh, in in changing a community, that's a great place to do it. Uh, wherever it is, if you can if you can find a way to put a face on the um, the the service you're doing for others, your team comes together differently. Oh yeah. And I mean, it's got to be hard. Too, when you have you know massive egos in the way as well, because it seems like it might interfere with the purpose. You, you mentioned that purpose is to know who you are in service of, but and sometimes the, it, you might have an ego on the team that that is only maybe in the service of themselves. Yeah, that, so 
again, we'll stick with the Olympic example. That that's that's where creative and innovative and thoughtful leadership makes a huge difference. Um, you know, we've got uh, our USA basketball team. Um, it's an example I use in the opening chapter of the book. Actually, uh, when they when the team was struggling, they had finished with a bronze at the Athens Olympics. Uh, they'd finished sixth in the world two years earlier. So, you know, we were no longer the, the world powerhouse in basketball that, that many people thought we should be. They hand the team over to Mike Krzyzewski at Duke, and, and he immediately creates, re- realizes that if I want to create a sense of service, if I want our team to believe they're in service of something bigger, who can I turn to? And he chose the military, right? Mm. People who also wear the letters USA on the front of their jersey every day, uh, but who do so with a, a, for a far different purpose. And he started bringing in wounded warriors to talk to our players. He started bringing in, he started taking our players on trips to, to Ellis Island. He started taking them to, to West Point. Uh, and, then, and then a few years ago, he took them to Arlington National Cemetery. And it's this really powerful story. Wow. But, That's but brilliant. He, he wanted our players to realize, you are really extraordinary, but today you get to be part of something bigger than you. Right. And enjoy that because it's a special place to be in your life. And it's again, he put a face on he put a face on who they're in service of, and that's one of the great challenges that a creative leader can take on. How can we put a face on who we're, who we're, uh, whose lives we're altering by doing good work? Mm. One of your points and chapters of the book um, is is really about your culture and how how to allow culture to shape recruiting. Talk about that. What do you mean by allowing a, the culture to shape recruiting? Sure. So one of the great challenges that happens, I think, with a lot of people uh, in the, uh, especially in the corporate world, is it, well, it happens in sports too, right? In sports, we get wrapped up as fans or whatever. How many five-star recruits did our team bring onto their roster? Uh, in in business, we might say, you know, what what university did they come from, right? You know, what, right. What's the pedigree of the person? Let's let's get caught up in resumes. The truth is that the great teams. Uh, are less fascinated by stars on recruiting profiles or or pedigrees. They are more caught up in here's what works in our team. Let's first off before we hire anybody, let's know what works best here. What do we again? This gets to culture. What do we value? Uh, what gets you elevated in in our environment? What what gets you fired? Right. That those are your cultural. Uh, their basic your baselines for culture are are like what what do you, what gets you uh, a, a raise at a company and what gets you fired. Those are your two, two uh, kind of mm-hmm. baselines. And once you know what those are, then you go out and you realize, hey, uh, now let's hire people that only come, that, that, that are going to come here because they fit, not because they, they look good on paper. And um, in, in my little company, I own a couple of small companies in Tallahassee, Florida. And, uh, you know, we have a culture document. In our, these, these are the things that work in our company. You know, one of them, for example, is that we do not micromanage because we're too small, right? We don't yeah. have time to. So when we're in interviewing somebody, we slide that document across the table and we say, "By the way, this is what works here. If if any of that doesn't resonate with you, if and I'm not passing judgment on you. Like if you need micromanagement, that's okay. Some people do. You'd be better off not coming to work here. Yeah, this right? won't work for you. Right. So you cut it off early, but you only do so if you know what works for you. And you can express it uh, clearly and openly, and most people can't. Most people, 
you know, in, innately, you know what works in your company, but most people never sit down to kind of scribble it on a sheet of paper. Right. And once you do that, then you start realizing, yeah, that person might work here. Uh, that person certainly couldn't come here. They, 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 they enjoy drama way too much, or whatever it might be. <laughs> well, that seems like that's it. They, you, a lot of times we hire people because they, you know, they're they're so. Um, I don't know. They're they're great salespeople. They can sell us in the interview. It seems like what we want, that charisma, that enthusiasm. But we also need them to be able to work. And we also need them to be able to work well with others. I know another point you bring up is that, you know, great teams manage dysfunction. They manage their friction. They don't just – the leaders don't just turn away and kind of allow them, you know, I guess just to – beat each other up, they actually manage it. They handle it. How, what do you suggest about dealing with strong personalities in a workplace? Well, the first thing that has to happen, again, you, and you, you hit it right on the head, as a leader, the leader of your, of your team, the leader has to be uh, willing to step in and say, by the way, I see this happening, and I want to address it. Um, and I, I want, I'd like the three of us to talk about it. I, I tell a story in the book about... Uh, I'm not a big NASCAR guy. I don't know a lot about auto racing. But I do know that over the last 15 years, the best team in auto racing is the team that that Jimmy Johnson drives uh, his race car for Rick Hendrick Motorsports. Mm. Uh, but a few years ago, Jimmy Johnson was, was having an issue with his, his uh, crew chief, right? And that's the person that is really kind of the non-driver lead of the team. Uh, and, uh, and that guy's name is Chad Knauss. And the owner of the team saw the friction, right, which all of us can generally see friction in our organizations. But instead of letting, instead of saying, you know what, I'm going to hope this goes away, I'm going to hope these guys work it out, uh, he summoned them to a meeting. And when he brought them in, the two guys showed up, and there was a quart of milk and a plate of cookies <laughs> and some Mickey Mouse plates on the table. And the, and the owner of the team said, by the way, if we're going to act like children, we're going to eat like children. <laughs> and so we're going to sit here over milk and cookies, and we're going to talk about what's going on on this team. So he addressed it, but he did it in a way that allowed yeah. everybody to. And these two guys went on to win six Sprint Cup titles, which you know, no one's come even close in that space. Uh, but they did so because, they, because a leader saw friction and chose not to close his eyes you know, put his fingers in his ears and hope it went away. Because the friction doesn't have to be a bad thing, right? It, it also could be, you know, the energy you need. It could be the spark you maybe need. Absolutely. Often, I mean, that's, that's one of the things we talk about often is that, is that friction is, when you say friction on your team, most people immediately put that in the negative category. But the truth is sometimes friction is a healthy expression of, uh, of, of competitiveness or of, of strong personalities, and, and those are not necessarily bad things. They just have to be, they have to be reined in into the better, the the better, the betterment of the of the of the greater good than uh, than the individual desire to be, to uh, you know, yeah. to be dysfunctional. Man, um, it's it really it, it's such a people are hard anyway. Then you put like twenty of them on a team, and then it gets a little a lot more complicated. That's why we and need a, a, a and pro. It, and then sometimes if you let that team ex- experience some success, yeah. then it gets really bad. Oh, yeah. Right? That, yeah. And then they cement in their ways, too. We're speaking with Don Yeager, author of the book Great Teams, 16 Things High-Performing Organizations Do Differently. You can go to his website, donyeager.com. We'll continue the discussion after the break. 
Stick with us, folks. We're talking high performance. We'll be right back. Friends to the Matt Townsend Show. Wow, I tell you, it's not easy. It's one thing to have a relationship, right? It's it's another to you know make a dyad or a marriage work effectively. It's another thing to make a team or then an organization and then to have success on top of it and some egos on top of it and then pay people to do it. It gets crazy. So we've asked a true blue expert to come in and, and uh, work with us. Don Yeager is joining us, and he's talking about uh, his latest book, um, Great Team, 16, high performing, uh, 16 Things High-Performing Organizations Do Differently, and he's walking us through the leadership, uh, you know, lessons 101. Don, thanks for being back with us. Matt, thanks a lot. I appreciate the opportunity to, to, to discuss this. This is just such, such engaging and fun stuff. I, I'm, I'm grateful to be part of it. Well, it is, and you make it, I think, a lot easier. I mean, we get into, there's so many books out there. You, by the way, to, to have as many New York Times bestsellers as you do, you're doing something right, Don. <laughs> well, I've been, I've been lucky. I mean, I can't, uh, if you'd have told me many years ago I'd be lucky enough to have one uh, New York Times bestseller, I'd be, a New York Times bestseller, I'd be, uh, I'd have pinched myself, and, <laughs> and now I'd, actually, I'm. Uh, I heard your intro. I, I, I think the, I think the publisher sent out the wrong note. Uh oh, actually, at number nine. Are you nine now? Isn't that crazy? That's amazing. That's, I mean, okay. the average book, Don. Read. I think people read. The average book has about ninety cells, and yours, obviously, doing okay. We, we, uh, <laughs> yeah, we're, we, we've been very blessed. That's great. So, and well, actually, I have to tell you, I know yeah. we've got a mutual. Um, connection here i know of your relationship with the franklin covey yeah. organization love that and, uh, and several years ago uh, the covey family uh sean and Stephen mr and uh and the the entire uh, the, the all nine children uh selected me to write their father's biography oh and, wow and so i have been working on that over the last few years and when is uh, that out hopefully next year uh we have we're in the we're in the final stages of the writing but it is a powerful Amazing uh, to get the chance to work with Dr. Covey, and then to get to learn uh, about how before he led millions, uh, he led nine. Yeah, which is really what what it's about. It's a uh, it's a pretty it's a it's a powerful. Uh, it, it might actually be worthy of being back on your show. No, you know what? It, it is for sure worthy of that. We'll have you back for that book. Plus, as I've been looking through all of your other books, there's so many topics we, we've got to have you back on because I'm old. No, I'm old. you're not. You're just you're just well read. You're you're well versed, is what you are, Don. Yeah, for sure, we've got to have you. And what an honor to to have to write Stephen Covey's biography. Amazing. One of the things that um, I learned in in leadership as I would go out and work with companies, it's one thing to like you know get everybody a purpose statement, get people kind of on the same page. But then it's the idea that they have to change and they have to embrace change because it's almost like sometimes you're going to get your team going and then out of the blue, something's going to uh, sneak up on you and create the change. How, how, do you, how do you instill that? How do you get a team to be adaptable and changeable? Well, I think the, the first thing, again, is mindset, right? It's that, it's that willingness that 
it's not about how we do it it's about what will what will what will ultimately get us where we need to go uh what will ultimately bring us to the right result and if you if instead of being caught up in how we do it you're more uh you're you're intrigued by fascinated by can't wait to figure out how we get there then what you end up with is the ability to to have people um say you know yeah i got it but i got this i got this creative idea i got um you know what if we tried this and if if from a leadership standpoint if if those who uh, have an opportunity to to first uh step on that idea like a bug which unfortunately too too many leaders do if their reaction is let me hear more mm. um, then you are you're opening the door for an environment where change will be seen not as a negative but as um, uh, an extension of your growth. Mm. Yeah, then it's then the change is just new opportunities, new markets, new right. new money. Right. Yeah, a way of uh, gosh, you know what? I had never thought of that. When's the last time you heard a leader say that? Right. Uh, when you, when, but the great ones do. Yeah. The great ones say, you know, I I had not uh, I, I hadn't really thought that that might be something that might work. Let's let's explore it further. Right. That doesn't mean. Um, John Wooden was a great basketball coach at UCLA, yeah. and and he and I had uh, a, a wonderful twelve year long relationship that led to a book that we wrote together. and And he used to say that, that one of the things that was important to him was that when an assistant coach or someone came with a creative idea or some way to do something, well, first off, his answer was never no. Right? He didn't he didn't believe you should start there. You should you should the next question should be let's explore that. And tell me more about why you think it would work. And, and he would do that hmm. because he, A, wanted to learn from them, but B, he wanted to understand how passionate they were about the idea. Because a lot of people will throw an idea at you that they've not thought through. And pretty quickly it becomes evident that it's not that great an idea <laughs> because they've not thought it. They just It was an idea, but it wasn't anything that could truly be executed upon. Hmm. If you, uh, But if you are willing to, to answer most comments like that with, uh, tell me more. Let's 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 think through that. What, let's then you you create within your team an opportunity for people to want to bring you ideas, right? For people yeah. want to be willing because they recognize that change and their participation in it could be healthy, and they can be part of it. And they, I guess they sense you're open. They sense you're you're willing to explore. Correct. Yeah, I've seen many a culture where the ideas end up leaving the organization because the culture is closed. Yeah, they're going to take that, that good idea. They're going to go somewhere else. Mm. And again, that's that's uh, money lost, money down the drain. And ideas and, and actually influence, right? Reach. Talk about one of the things you mentioned is that uh, I guess it's one of the great things that effective or, or healthier organizations do and, and higher performing organizations do differently. They speak a different language. What do you what do you mean by that? You have an entire chapter on that. I do, yeah. Because again, I, and, and and this is an extension of that, right? This how you react when someone brings you an idea. Uh, you know, there are most most organizations, many organizations. The uh, you know, someone of some level of influence might say, you know what, I, I don't want to even. Let, that, that's that's I'm, I'm caught up too caught up in where we are. But but as far as ex- speaking a different language, it's often around how we handle how the great teams handle. Um, mistakes, right? Right. Uh, the example that I use uh, as a key part of the opening of that chapter is 
the Seattle Seahawks and Pete Carroll. Um, I spent time with Coach Carroll and the Seahawks studying how they have been, how they've turned that franchise into what is today one of the models in the NFL of consistency. Um, and, uh, and, and one of the things that, that came up was they have an entire, uh, when Coach Carroll brings a, an assistant on the team, you know, he says, first off, I don't care how you've done it before. I don't care how you've talked to players before. You will not, here's how it will work here. Hmm. No one is doing what they wanted. No one's doing this job to fail, right? So no wide receiver runs out and drops a pass because he wants to, right? So we will not, when they come back to the sidelines, berate them for being an idiot because they dropped the pass. They didn't do it because they wanted to. It, they did it, and we need to teach them how to make sure they do it better in mm. the future. So we will speak differently to them when they fail. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and when you begin that instruction, and then I went and studied other teams, and I learned that how even great business leaders, Gary Kelly at Southwest Airlines, he is a master when challenge comes his way of not uh, of flipping the conversation almost immediately into what what can we learn from this? How can we improve? How can we make sure we don't do it again? Uh, as opposed to whose fault is it? Who, who can we pin this on? You know, if I've got to if I've got to announce it to the press, uh, you know, uh, whose head can I chop? Yeah. Um, which is what most people are doing today in most environments. So the great teams actually have flipped the conversation when it comes to uh, improvement. Yeah, they, I guess they they think it, it works because you know, maybe they're dealing with pros or they're dealing with people that can still make it work. But I guess they're not optimizing, right? They're not leveraging the other approach of language. Right, because what they're, what they're, what they're saying to them is, Hey, and how many times have you seen a you know player come to the sidelines? Do you think anybody in in professional football intends to fumble? No way. Do you think any quarterback meant to throw an interception? No. So, given that when you insult them for their for their action, you're really chipping away at your uh, at your belief in their professionalism, and that's the way that's the way the mind is wired. If you if you treat and yet that is the model that too many places follow today. If you fail, we we have to blame somebody. We have to we have to put it on you. You gotta you gotta feel the pain because mm. I'm gonna have to feel the pain when I when I talk to the press afterward. Yeah, it's all, it's it's almost like redirecting the pain, right? <laughs> Trying yeah. to spread out the pain so it's not all on you. But I guess leaders have to take the pain. I mean, it was yeah. the, he missed made a mistake. He just yeah, the great the great leaders. Uh, and, but I love that. I mean, as I watched it too. I mean, literally, you watch. Uh, you know, uh, and I watched. Uh, I'm, I'm going to use a specific example. I watched a in practice uh, a wide receiver go out and drop a pass, right? And I watched his assistant coach when the wide receiver came to the sidelines, head down, expecting what he gets at most other NFL training camps, right? Yeah. Which is, dude, what what is up with you? I mean, how, how do you where, where are your hands today? Did you leave at home? Or you know, there's some kind of sarcastic remark. And instead, this assistant coach says, "Hey, you know." Uh, do you remember this morning when we went through this particular drill on tape, we talked about three steps this way, hard cut to your left, extend your left arm further than your right. Just remember now, you're going to get another shot at this. Remember to remember that that's the way this mm. is to be done. Yeah, that's huge. 
and, and the guys and the guy looks differently when he looks up at the coach because right. he's the, and this was a player who had been on several rosters, so he had not probably ever been treated this way. And uh, and, it, and and I watched him go off to have a great practice. Yeah, so. that's good. That's good psychology. As we as we wrap it up, Don, what would you say is the one thing? The one thing. I mean, of everything you 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 know in the book that you wrote, great teams, uh, sixteen things high performing organizations do different. What's the one thing we need to make sure we remember? That will that will maybe take us the farthest when it comes to building a high performing organization. That and it's the one we started out with. It's that idea that the best teams uh, are, are rallied around a sense of purpose, and this is extremely important, even more important as we begin to be overtaken by the millennial generation in our workplace. Yeah, you know, almost every study out there, uh, the millennials will rate uh, what they earn for a living. Sometimes as low as sixth. Wow! The reason they go to work for a company or stay at a company, but going to work for a company where they believe what they do matters—that's number one. So you have to be able to express to others why what we do matters, who it matters to, and the better you are at that, the better you'll be at building a great team. Mm. Great thoughts, Don. Thank you so much for your great work. We will for sure have you back on many of your other books, and excited to see the biography on Stephen Covey. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate Take care. It so much, buddy. Don Yeager is his name. Go to his website, donyeager.com, nine New York Times bestsellers. Folks, if you had any idea how hard that is, that's, uh, that's quite the feat. We will be back giving you more ideas, more information on how to live healthier lives. Stick with us. Knock, 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 one, two, three, and four, as I knock, knock, Welcome back, everybody. little knock-knock music for you. Why, you ask? Because it is Tell-A-Joke Day. It's also the day we finally figure out why the chicken crossed the road. Last hour, we figured out why the chicken crossed the playground. It was to get to the other slide. Is that right, Jeff? Yeah, and you particularly did not like that one. Well, those weren't even knock-knock jokes, so I'm excited this hour to celebrate uh, Tell-A-Joke Day because today, right now, we're going to be doing knock-knock jokes, which usually these have me rolling. So, Jeffrey Simpson, enlighten us with a knock-knock joke. Knock-knock. Who's there? To who? To who who? To whom? And I totally botched that joke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the, the joke is knock-knock, who's there, yeah. to to who? Oh, yeah. To whom? To who? Who? This is a grammatical joke that. <sighs> okay, but see, see now. Let's just let's see. Just... Now it's even funnier, right? It's hilarious. That yeah. is the best joke you've told today. Because <laughs> the joke was on Jeff. <laughs> okay, uh... Uh, so I would have said two, and you would have said to who? Uh, yeah. Okay, uh, let's try another knock knock joke because I'm sure your next one. Now, you want to just take a second and think it through. <sighs> Okay, I'm good. Okay, here we go. Hang on, folks. Knock, knock. Who's there? Interrupting dyslexic cow. Interrupting dyslexic cow. Oh, mo. That was funny. Do you need a minute? (laughs) But that was funnier. That was funnier. Okay. So, by the way, that's a good one for the people to remember to take home. Yeah. Take that one home. Dyslexic interrupting cow. Yes. Okay, good, good, good. Let's do another one. These are great. 
Knock, knock. Who's there? Britney Spears. Britney. Knock, knock. Who's there? Oops, I did it again. Anyone? Anyone? Okay. Um, <laughs> I don't. Jeff, maybe we didn't communicate. Uh, it's tell a joke day. They should be like like funny. Like these should be the ones that like. Uh, you, they just you have people just laughing. Okay, okay. I've got one more that we can use right now. Yeah. Okay. What is it? What do you call a cow that has just given birth? What do you call a cow that's just given birth? I don't know. Decaffeinated. <laughs> that's good. That's good. Okay. Well, uh, happy joke day. Hmm. Get out there, folks. Tell a joke today. Today's the day. We'll take a break. We'll be back next hour. More jokes. Stick with us. Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. What creates higher trust for you and the people around you? Your guide on the side. And a lot of us end up spending our entire life searching for what we expect instead of what has actually been given to us. Dr. Matt Townsend. Hey, when it comes to uh, talent management, remember, it's always about people management. These are all These are all relationships. And there's always going to be a relationship uh, measurement, as even as uh, he, Mark was taking us through his content um, from the Talent Magnet book. Every one of these ideas he was talking about, a better boss, a brighter future, and a bigger vision, each one of those, and then, by the way, the ability to tell the story, those are all created through interaction. You know if you have a better boss – by how you interact with them and how they interact with you. You know if you have a brighter future in your organization based on interaction. You know, based on it's not just the fact that you have a really good mission statement or a really great company party. It's about the fact that you know what your purpose is in this organization. You can see some light of day from where you are to where you want to be professionally. You can see that you're going to grow and be developed. You can see that because of your experience in the organization, you are actually elevating your abilities in your game, which will only increase your ability to get a job tomorrow. That all, every one of those things happens through interaction with human beings. Those human beings are your coworkers, your bosses, your team meetings, your your leaders, your HR department. We're doing this all day long, constantly. Um, and so remember, as you're, this is still about human relationships. This is about creating um, understanding. I, I, can't, uh, I, I, I can't give too many details, but I've sat in meetings recently with, uh, with my clients. And as we were talking, the children didn't – it was a family meeting. The children didn't feel like their parents were listening. And the parents – Basically, we're like, oh, please, of course we're listening. And yet the kids sat there and they were eloquent children that were teaching, that were literally voicing in a way that I hadn't heard kids ever voice. They were sharing their feelings, their voices, and they were being very, very real and very upfront. They weren't hiding. They weren't fighting. They weren't flighting. They were just communicating. But the parents couldn't hear it. 
And the parents were so frustrated because the children were so um, not just conforming to what they want. And it was creating tension. And I, I sat there and I thought, boy, this this is this is a pretty typical argument issue that you know parents might have with their kids. Um, but the kids had also been hurt, and it's really complicated. And I can't give you too many details without giving a lot of detail. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. It doesn't matter um, if we don't feel understood. It doesn't matter why the parents aren't understanding them. If the children don't feel understood by their parents. They're not going to change. They're not going to bend. And it doesn't matter why this, this communication isn't working. Um, it doesn't matter in an organization. If an employee doesn't see the, the future of their organization, um, it doesn't matter who we can blame. A lot of times we think it's about who do we blame for that. It doesn't matter who to blame because if that employee doesn't see the future, um, then they don't see the future. And you're going to pay for it. If they don't see the bigger vision of what the organization's trying to do, then they don't see it. If they don't have if they don't see that their boss is engaged and and really helping them fulfill their mission, it's not gonna happen. So we have to almost go the extra mile on this process. If you are a boss or if you're an employee, we have to make sure you're looking into your organization. What can you do to push your boss to be a better boss? What can you do to make sure you understand your future in the organization? And what can you do to actually connect into the bigger vision? So you have to be proactive as an employee and bosses need to be proactive as bosses to make sure that those needs are being met for their people. Because if they're not, it doesn't matter why it didn't happen. You're losing leverage. You're losing ground with the people that matter most. So it's just – it's basic business, right? It's business 101 and it's human relationships 101. Um, It's not enough to just keep losing talent. You can keep losing talent in your organization and and chalk it up to whatever, but if you don't fix it, the actual talent problem, then it's just not going anywhere and it'll spiral to one degree or another. It also, by the way, remember, it doesn't mean you can't get by because average talent many times is fine. That's why the enemy of the best is the good. Sometimes sometimes your organization might want to be real that we can't afford, we can't have the top talent. So let's just get really good with average talent or let's get really good with what we've got or what we can get. It doesn't have to be top, top, top talent. And again, top talent's highly subjective, right? Anyway, we're all trying to work on it one way or another, but take more control of your own approach don't just sit back and hope that your boss and your company hand this all to you. Make sure you're proactively leading your life toward it. Good stuff. We'll take a break, folks. Continue the journey. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. One of the most important roles I think we play as as adults, as parents, and I see it in my office a lot as I, as I meet with clients, um, we have a very specific responsibility to help our children find their light, right? To find their gift, to find what they are bringing to the world. And in in doing so, we have a responsibility to bring some hope and but it takes some discernment. You've got to you've got to figure out with your kids what they can do to um to go attack the world and impact the world and be a positive force in the world. And I wonder if we do enough of it. Because 
I think we think uh, the schools are going to help our children find themselves and figure out their their gifts and their talents and their abilities. And I, I don't think that's the school's responsibility. I don't think it's your teachers, your children and their teachers' um, job to, to go figure out your child's talents. That, I think, is uniquely the parent's responsibility. Um, and and it, you don't, it doesn't have to be oppressive and scary. It's it should just be a natural part of life. What do you see your children uniquely gifted to do? What about their personality um, can set them up for a great life? And and you might be worth giving your children this kind of feedback. I have children that are just like me in a way, incredibly optimistic about life. In fact, many times I feel like that's a weakness of mine because I'm so optimistic that, you know, the world can be falling around me and I'm still thinking, hey, we still have a chance. But one of the, the issues I found is um, I, have, I have, for example, children who uh, their friends are all out selling pest control door to door, you know, which, hey, great. I think that's awesome. If you can go make, uh, you know, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 in a summer and then that can support you for a year or two. Go do it. I think that's great. I just know that my kids can't do that very well. That's not in their – I mean they could go get it done, but it's not in their wheelhouse of something that they could do comfortably or something that they would enjoy doing. Um, they would have a nervous breakdown <laughs> having to to you know talk about pests with people in another state all summer long. But my – I just had a son that went to Colorado – to do research, and they still had to go pretty much door to door, but they were doing research. Didn't pay as well, but they they were giving back to families and, and communities, doing some research for for um, a program here at BYU. And he found his gift. He found his ability. He found something he loves to do, and he's so excited. He's excited to go do it again next summer. But before that, he was battling to try to decide if he should go sell pest control in Oklahoma. And I looked at him and I'm like, would you like to do that? And he's like, not really. And I'm like, then why are you even considering it? We, we need to be the guide on the side for these kids and help them understand their own personality. Now, sure, if he had gone, he would have learned that he's not good at that, that he would have learned that. But – he doesn't have to make the mistake or go have the trial if we could guide him a little bit more and help him understand what he's good at, help him understand what he really does well. Is he a communicator? Does he tend to want to be with people or be, be with less people? Is he more of a thinker? And and start guiding him to what he does well. There's assessments you can take all over the place. Um, and 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 what are his unique gifts and traits? What does he love to do? What would he spend his time doing anyway? Um, well, he'll just play video games. Great. Okay, so he likes technology. Is he good at technology? Then lean him toward technology. But parents, we need to give our kids some direction. There's nothing more powerful for me than when my wife once told me, "I really think that you could be a good like TV reporter or anchor." The minute she said that, I finally had the liberty and the freedom to go after what I wanted to do instead of pretending like I was going to be a lawyer or a doctor because that's what the people in my life did. So parents, let's step up. Let's give our kids a little more direction, a little more insight. You don't have to do it for them, but you can definitely give them some feedback in a loving way, and I think it will go a long way for the rest of us. Lift the world. 
by lifting our children. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. And we talk about self-esteem, right? So we want to, we want to have this belief in ourself, but uh, we got to be really clear what self we're talking about. Because when you think of you, you are not just you. You are made up of a body. You're made up of a mind. You're made up of a spirit. You are made up of a bunch of different thoughts and paradigms and beliefs about who you are. So be really careful. Um, as you try to grow self-esteem, you, you got to focus somewhere. And my concern is that many people spend the majority of their time trying to build self-esteem, probably working on only one of the three components of self-esteem, which is the body. So your body, a great tool, right? A great source brings you the chemistry, you know, it allows you to feel the pleasure and the pain of the world. You can rip, you can get those ripped abs like I've got, you know, buns of steel, muscles galore, rippling. Okay, don't be rude. And you, you can have all of that going for you. You can be stronger than everyone else. You can be faster. You can uh, financially go make all the money you want to take care of your body and your body's needs. You can drive the nice car, something to put your body into. You can buy the best clothes. And interestingly, it won't necessarily make you feel better. It will for a while. But eventually, if you want true self-esteem, you're going to have to go deeper than the body, right? So eventually, you're going to want to – you're going to jump into your mind. And the mind is where you, you, know, you want to start you know, having some power. You want to be more popular, do you want some of the things that are less tangible, not a car necessarily, but you want prestige, you want popularity, you want people to like you. And you'll realize that your car's great, but it doesn't mean people actually like you. They might just use you for your car. So as you move into your mind, you're going to you're going to you're going to like it. Your mind likes, you know, looking good, it likes being popular. It likes having, you know, maybe not even you're not even going to sit there and like sit in your money and just play in all your money. That's the tangible stuff. But you just like knowing that you have more than others. So that becomes a mind game for you now. Now your mind is being satisfied because you're getting ahead supposedly in life. The problem with your mind, though, is um, you're never going to be good enough because eventually you're going to have a neighbor move in that will have more money than you. So your mind alone isn't where you're going to find self-esteem either. It's not going to be in your mind that you – because your mind's constantly going to be comparing you. And you're either going to have to be better or just worse than everywhere else. And your mind's going to kind of bifurcate it and make it an either or. So the true source of essence is always going to be in the spiritual side. Essence is your ability to have less and be okay with it. It's your ability to be present. Essence is that good feeling you feel when you are doing something that is noble and good that you love to be about. It's holding your grandchild. It's holding your child. It's that silent night in the middle of the night when you're just rocking your baby back to sleep and you just feel peace. It's when you're serving. It's when you're out in nature. That's where your true sense of who you are comes from. It's usually in the quiet times we find ourselves. It's not in the loud, busy dance halls or bars that you're going to find your true identity. Super fun. But in the end, you've got to be okay with yourself. You've got to know what your purpose is. You've got to feel some connection to a higher power. Your true self, your true esteem is going to come from knowing 
that why you're here on this earth and what you're doing here and being connected to some bigger purpose. And I'd also say being connected to a higher power. And you can go determine what that higher power is. But if we're not connected to it, then what can you esteem? The highest power I've or the highest esteem I have is knowing that I'm a child of some of God, of something bigger than myself. That brings me more self-confidence than anything I could do or have or say. Doing what we can to, to help you be the best talent in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, did you know that at least one in three people could be considered an introvert? But what is an introvert? How are they different from extroverts? What can we learn from each other? Today's guest is Andre Solo. He is a proud introvert. Andre is a published author, experienced adventurer, and trained philosopher who believes that working on his extroversion skills has made him a better introvert. Here to help us understand what an introvert is, as well as what we can all do to make ourselves happier as introverts, is Andre Solo. Welcome, Andre Solo, to The Matt Townsend Show. Hey, Matt. Good to be here. Great to have you. Uh, again, if people want to get to you, there's a, there's a, your website's a wonderful site, roguepriest.net, um, A Philosopher's Journey to Meet the Gods. Talk to us, Andre, about uh, this extroversion-introversion. I guess I always like to define the terms. Define for us what is an introvert, what is an extrovert. Yeah, so I actually I define introversion a little bit differently than most people do. I think most of us have heard the saying that an introvert gets their energy from being alone and an extrovert gets their energy from being around people. Yeah. And that's not technically true. I mean, scientifically speaking, everybody, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, we all recharge by having some downtime, and we all get worn out if we have too much social time or too much stimulus. Mm. Um, the difference is that extroverts are marathon runners in a social environment, and introverts are sprinters. Oh, that's, <laughs> so we get worn a out a lot. Way. No, so my wife is a com- my wife is like a mega marathoner. She likes to do the hundred <laughs> miles in every social setting, and I'm kind of a sprinter. That by about fifteen hundred meters, I'm exhausted. Exactly, exactly. Isn't that interesting? That's a great way to do it. So it's kind of the marathoner versus sprinter. Talk about uh, you because – so are you – do you see yourself as a, as a sprinter, as an introvert? I'm definitely an introvert, definitely a sprinter in a social situation. I have to kind of psych myself up before I go to a social situation. Um, even, even good friends that I really love, if, if they show up unexpectedly or I didn't, I didn't plan on having the conversation, I, I find myself just kind of floundering and losing my energy really quickly. So I, I have to be prepared almost to uh, so take on a social event. That's actually me. And nobody believes it, Andre, because if you have a radio show or if you do a lot of public speaking, everyone thinks you just love people. And I love people. I really do. I just, like you say, I, you know, I know that I've got to conserve my energy for certain situations. Exactly. That's what it is. Is it, um, yeah, I guess, are we just born this way? Are we socialized this way? How does this come to be? So it's interesting. There's a mix of both. Um, but the truth is we are largely born this way. It turns out that um, even, even babies within a couple months of being born, um, they're going to already be presenting more of an introverted personality and more of an extroverted personality. That's going to stay for life. And the, the cool thing is that our brains as introverts are actually different um, than extroverts' brains. We have slightly different um, 
biochemistry, and uh, we, we just sort of process the world differently. The main difference being that we have a lot going on. I mean, everybody has an inner world. Everybody has thoughts and feelings and right. daydreams. Um, but we have a lot going on in our heads, and a lot of times what's going on in our heads is, is very interesting to us, and it's almost hard to pull yourself out to pay attention to what's in the world around you. And that's where that drained feeling comes from. You're almost trying to pay attention to, like, two TV shows at once instead of just one. Yeah, exactly. And I guess that is the draining process, right, is if, I, if I've got the external uh, story being told and all the stimulus and all of the excitement outside of me, but inside I'm also processing a lot of it, or I mean, and plus all my last stories from yesterday tonight, is that what wears me out is is the overwhelming you know data overwhelm exactly, yeah, it's mm. like you're multitasking all the time if somebody's talking to you or, or there's something happening in the physical world around you you're you're dealing with that and your own inner thing at the same time, and it, it gets tiring now you talk about different types of introverts. Uh, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so that's interesting. There's some new research out, and I'm not, I'm not super familiar with it, but just basically delving into the idea that, that not every introvert is introverted in the same way or for the same reason. So, for example, there's a difference between somebody who is introverted primarily because they are really lost in their own inner world, like me, um, just always thinking of, of ideas and what-ifs and stuff like that, versus somebody who's introverted maybe because they have social anxiety and because they're, you know, they, they, they get a sense of nervousness uh, mm. around other people. Um, so just the idea that there's different reasons, or, or maybe it's, you know, we probably all have the same, you know, the same wiring as introverts, but maybe it just expresses itself in different ways. So two people who identify as introverts could experience that very, very differently. Mm. And one might say, hey, I'm not shy. I'm not nervous around other people. I just, uh, I just feel really introverted and get drained quickly. And the other person might say, like, well, yeah, I get drained quickly too, but I, I do actually experience a lot of anxiety dealing with the social situation. Yeah. So it's a little bit different for every person. Have you, ever, have you ever heard or studied about high sensitivity and Elaine Aaron's work? Yes. <laughs> See, so that's fascinating overlap with introverts. Isn't yeah. it totally? And, and I even look at it. So maybe another one is, I mean, one is the inward kind of soul that – that just is very introspective. But I wonder if, if somebody is also a high sensitive and they just overstimulate easily. Um, exactly. That's interesting. So, so really, we, it's not enough to just call us an introvert. And now we're even having discussions about ambiverts, you know, people right. that can do both. And, um, but in the end, I, I guess it's not about even defining yourself, but really understanding how you work, really. Exactly. Yeah. Finding your that, code, yeah. That like sense of coming to understand yourself is, I think, the biggest thing that an introvert can do. Even more, much more important than working in your extrovert skills, because I don't think there's any introvert, any introvert out there who should try to pretend to be an extrovert or try to fake it. I mean, I think we get enough of that kind of talk. Um, I found it useful to work on those skills, but really the biggest thing you can do for yourself is just to get to understand how your mind works. And I feel like, for me personally, once I realized I was an introvert, and I, and I understood what that meant, I started to feel normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Like, <laughs> oh, normal, I'm not know? crazy. I thought I was crazy. Right. But just because I, I felt like, why do I always want to avoid people? Exactly. Yeah. I think just growing up, I, I, you know, nobody specifically told me this, but I just got the sense that if you, didn't, uh, if you weren't really outgoing and social all the time, if you didn't just love being around people all the time, that there was something wrong with you, mm-hmm. that you were being stuck up or, or something. And I, I felt like, oh, I have to change myself. There's, there's something wrong about me. And, you know, when you realize that, no, this is actually how a third, maybe half of the population is, and it's normal, and it's got advantages too, 
uh, that's a powerful thing. Now, in this whole process, you've been you've put together an experiment that you've been doing and writing about, <laughs> talking about. Share with us, talk us, talk to us about your experiment uh, with your extroversion or your right. introversion so, and extroversion. Yeah, kind of with the both of them, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I've just always been a big believer in working on my weaknesses. Um, I really believe that we can change uh, a lot of, you know, like any, anything you're not good at, it's not just because you're doomed to be bad at that thing. You can actually practice it and get better. And so a few years back, you know, and I used to be much, much shyer of an introvert. I was very socially awkward, um, which not all introverts are, but I was. I was just awfully bad in social situations. And I decided, well, what if this is a skill you can learn the way that you can learn, like, dance or yoga? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so I made a list of things that I wanted to be better at, and the very first one was just like talking to strangers, just making conversations. And I'm not even recommending that everybody do this because it, it was really awkward. Um, but I, I just set a challenge for myself. I decided, okay, well, this week I'm going to talk to five strangers. And I had rules. You know, the strangers, they can include like waiters or people at a, a store, like the people who work at a store, because those people are paid to be nice to you. <laughs> right. You know, they, they have to like kind of babysitters, smile, no right. you are. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's like actual strangers, just walk up to them and you're going to have five conversations this week. And that's Ooh. what you're going to do. So wow. I have a little checklist and it was, it went terribly the first time <laughs> <laughs> I was in an art museum and, uh, you know, somebody was admiring this painting across the room from me. And since I had no social skills at the time, I didn't go up and kind of, you know, politely say, oh, hey, uh, you know, what do you like? about this? I kind of from across the room almost like yelled, like, hey, cool painting, right? <laughs> and, and they turned kind of surprised. Uh, but I was shocked. They didn't seem weirded out. They didn't, they didn't run away. They, they started talking to me about the painting. And Isn't so, I, you know, we had a conversation. But I missed almost the whole conversation because in my head I was thinking, sweet, I got one of my five done. There's one. <laughs> I just got out of there as fast as I could. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? That's I mean, but what a great exercise that you're, but you're pushing yourself to do that. <laughs> right, yeah. And it is funny because, I mean, as much as I joke about how bad I was at it, it, it's sort of like the first time you go to, uh, you know, to the gym. You, the very first time you go, you're, you're going to just feel like dead afterward. You're not going to be good at any of the exercises. But after going six months, you start to get better and better and see results. And it is true. After I challenged myself enough times, I, I got better at making small talk. I started to notice does the person look bored? Should I cut this off? Or hmm. I came up with ways of coming up with better topics of conversation that I, I found more interesting because most small talk is really boring to most introverts. Like no one really cares. Like when people ask you, what do you do for a living? They don't really care. Yeah, right. Let's Unless just get through this. Agent, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. are you done yet? Okay, that's exactly. good. Yeah. It's so true. But, but what I found now, I learned it, Andre, as a um, so as an LDS missionary, I went to Argentina, lived there for two years and was basically in my introverted way, felt forced and compelled to have to learn to talk to people that I didn't know. And it was a great it was an incredible experience for me. And interestingly, though, and you tell me because I know you, you're you all over the country and the world, I mean, um, mm-hmm. doing it in Spanish actually helped me, too, because I almost felt like I could hide through a language, if that right. makes sense. And But it, I learned that, holy cow, I can learn how to actually get comfortable starting a conversation like you were talking about and finding a really good way to start one. And um, and learning all the nuances. And, and once I had some of those skills, I didn't feel as much fear or anxiety. Yeah, travel, I feel like, is a great teacher for a lot of skills. And certainly people's skills is one of them. Yeah. Um, 
and it doesn't have to be international travel. I, I do. I'm, I'm actually getting ready to bike across, to like ride my bicycle across Central America later this year as a, as a charity thing. Wow. Um, which will be fun. But, I mean, it can be anywhere. But if you're in a city that you don't live in, you know, where you just don't know that many people, it's great. Because on the one hand, you have to talk to strangers just kind of to survive. Yeah. But then on the other hand, if you don't want to talk to anybody, almost no one knows you, and it's really easy to just slip under the radar. So it's kind of that perfect mixture of, like, you have to get outside of your comfort zone, but you also can retreat anytime you need to. Mm, it's so true. We're going to take a break. Uh, we are, we're speaking today with Andre Solo. He, is, uh, he has a website called roguepriest.net. Go look it up, roguepriest.net. We'll be back and continue our discussion on extroversion skills, helping to make a happier introvert it's, it's at your disposal, folks. You can just start to talk, start to relate to people, learn slowly, but push yourself a bit. We'll take a break. More with Andre Solo when we come back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Andre Solo is joining us. Uh, Andre is uh, a what they call the rogue priest. If you go to roguepriest.net, he is an author, a philosopher, a professional adventurer. Since 2012, he has traveled across the Americas with nothing but a bicycle, and uh, he is doing all he can to write about heroism, spirituality, and exploring the world as an introvert. Today he's talking to us about how gaining uh, some extroversion skills, some social skills, made him a happier introvert. Andre, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Matt. Fun topic, and uh, I, I really do. I, I think everybody, we don't need the label extrovert or introvert. We just need the awareness, the understanding, and then we got to kind of figure out how to handle it. Yeah, I think that's exactly what it comes down to. And there's no one right way for introverts to kind of to kind of explore their own introversion. But for me personally, it did help a lot to work on my, so, my social skills. I think mostly just because once I realized I could do it, it didn't seem scary anymore. I was able to start accepting that I just prefer quiet time once I realized I'm not actually bad at socializing. I just prefer not to do much. Right. Of it. Well, yeah. and it's interesting, too. You you chose philosophy, you know, uh, a skill set where you go, I mean, you still communicate with others, but a lot of it is in your own thinking, but yeah. bicycles um, and, and getting out there and letting your mind kind of do the work for you. It's, it's interesting how we end up choosing in a way where we work many times based on what we're drawn to and, and our introversion or extroversion. Yeah, that's exactly right. To me, when I'm when I'm on the bicycle on those long days, a lot of times it'll be eight, nine hours just pedaling, and you're usually out in the middle of nowhere. It's usually beautiful surroundings, and it's it's almost like a meditation. I'm just lost in my thoughts for hours and hours, and it's great. Do you, um, when when you think about this this study that you did, this kind of experiment where you you basically pushed yourself to talk to people uh, five a day, talk to five strangers a day, five conversations. Um, what what did you find out about your happiness? H- have you been missing as an introvert that maybe hides or had historically hidden more on a bicycle, not having these conversations? Were you less happy? Were you more happy? Was it the same when you started to talk to others? It was interesting. It was it was a mix. I mean, initially I was much happier because I felt like I was succeeding at something that I'd always thought I was just doomed to be terrible at. 
Um, and also, you know, even, even as an introvert, of course, there is a lot of value in making those human connections, and I, I do like other people. Um, so it was nice but making more connections with people. Um, I did find out that even as I got better at it, it was still draining. You know, that never went away, and this was before I understood what it meant to be an introvert. Um, so it kind of helped to push me to understand myself better because I'm, I'm realizing, no, no, you're getting really good at this. People, people now think you're social and charming and all that kind of stuff, um, but you're still leaving these, these parties exhausted, you know, or, or leaving these events just feeling like, oh, man, I wish I'd left two hours ago. Um, and I also learned some, some sort of uh, truths about how it works as an introvert. I, I guess I sort, of, I sort of busted some of my own myths hmm. because I had always assumed that I was just only able to socialize in small groups and that a, a big group would be too much for me. And I also thought that I was only going to be able to have a good conversation with people I knew well and that I would have a tough time with strangers. And it turns out that neither of those are true. Once I, once I worked on learning those kind of extrovert skills, um, I realized that I can, I can do it in almost any setting, you know, with a bunch of people I've just met for the first time or in a, in a huge room with, with dozens or hundreds of people. I can do it the way an extrovert would. I can, I can move around, talk to lots of different people one after another and, and feel okay with myself. Um, and that was really fascinating to me because that, that surprised me. That it's interesting um, that you you found a lot of it sounds like little tricks. One of the tricks you mentioned is that you you understand that everyone enjoys talking about themselves, and so <laughs> it's it's it is it's a it's a pretty powerful trick, isn't it? You just throw one question out to them, and usually they just eat it up like a rabid dog. Exactly. Yeah. The hard part with that as an introvert is, and I hate to say this, but I'll throw that question out to them and they'll start talking so happily about their life. And I have to really try <laughs> not to just like tune it out. You yeah. know, I have to keep like my attention on them so that I hear what they're saying and I can ask them a follow-up question or, or, you know, or comment on what they're saying. It's really easy for me to daydream during conversations. That's one bad habit. I still have a hard time breaking. Isn't that interesting? Talk <laughs> about, you, you also, I think, cited, first time I've ever heard of this topic. This this idea of the social battery and social energy. Right. Talk, talk about that. What's going on there? Yeah, I think everybody has this to some degree. It, you you know your your brain gets tired the more you do with it, and that's <laughs> there's only so much willpower that we have as people. We like to think of like you know well no matter what I want to do if I can just will myself to if I can just have iron you know solid willpower I can I can do anything. And that's true to an extent, but apparently, according to uh, neuroscientists, um, willpower is limited. You only have so much until you rest and get a good night's sleep. And so if you spend a lot of your willpower trying not to eat a donut for breakfast and try to eat something healthy instead, and then you spend some more willpower trying to get to work on time when you're almost late, you spend some more willpower doing something that you didn't want to do at work that day or trying to be really nice to a coworker who is kind of a jerk, you're running low on the, on the battery in your head. And as an introvert, that means you only have so much energy left to give to social time before you hit that. that uh, I think every introvert's experience what we call an introvert hangover. Uh, yeah. <laughs> where eventually you've just you've had so much stimulation and so much time around other people that you kind of shut down. You just you feel a little bit wrecked until you get a lot of alone time. What do you say to the people, maybe an extrovert that looks, like, looks at you and like, ah, oh, come on. Come on, Andre. Everybody gets tired. Don't call it introversion. Just, just buck up and talk. 
Yeah, I get that a lot. A lot of extroverts, I think, are sick of hearing introverts talk about our, our whole, you know, it's, it's sort of been like a moment lately for introverts. Like everybody's talking about right. it, writing about it finally, and people are learning what that means. And I think it gets annoying for a lot of people. They're like, well, come on, you know, they're like, everybody gets tired, you know, it's not a big deal. And I guess my response is just like, it, it's the old, you know, walk a mile in somebody else's shoes thing. Like, I, I know that to you, it seems like I should be able to just kind of, you know, pull up my cowboy pants and, and go another three hours to this party. But um, if you knew what it was like to get this fatigued, and a lot of times I will use that marathon runner versus sprinter example. I'm mm-hmm. like, everybody can, can benefit, you know, health-wise from jogging. Um, and jogging makes you feel good. Like, you actually release happy chemicals. But some people are going to be just done after like you said, 1,500 meters, and other people can go the full 26-mile marathon. So some people are sprinters, and I'm like, socially, I'm a sprinter. And I yeah. think a lot of times that makes it a lot clearer for them. What, what about the job of the introvert to find – they have to identify their own type, their own scent, their own reason for doing what they're doing. But and in a way, you have to embrace it. I, I have a lot of people that I talk to that are trying to um, start a career and they really want to do this certain type of career. And I look at them and, and I think, wow, I'm not sure you'll be happy uh, doing a job that will demand, like even teaching school, yes. when they're so loving being alone. Yeah. And, and so how did you come to that realization of yourself and what would you recommend for the rest of us? I mean, it is. It's an ongoing process. I think a lot of introverts are drawn to being teachers because a lot of us liked school when we were kids. We were, right. we were good at it. Yeah. <laughs> quiet, the quiet worker in the back of the room. Exactly. And then you realize that teaching is, because my girlfriend used to be a teacher, yeah. and uh, she, she quit for exactly that reason, um, that it was, it was really draining to her. And she, would, she, would, she loved the kids in her class, and she loves being around kids, but she would come home at the end of the day and just feel like, you know, it was almost impossible to move. Um, for me personally, I worked for a long time in the nonprofit world. Um, some of my jobs were more people-oriented than others, and I eventually quit in order to become a writer. And I've I've never regretted that. I, mm. I now work. You know, I mean, writers are, are famously reclusive. You know, nice. so I now work primarily on my own. I can work uh, in in my home if I want to. I can work at a coffee shop, um, and I can literally, if I choose to, I can go weeks talking to almost no one except for, like, you know, my girlfriend and, and maybe whoever checks me out at the grocery store. Um, so it's completely in my hands how much alone time I want to have. And obviously that's not possible for everybody in their career, but I do think that um, the more you can sort of steer yourself toward a position where you are expected to do good work on your own. I mean, a, a sales position is hard. A teaching position is hard. If it's a position where you have to get in front of big groups of people, again, we can do it. We can become exceptional yeah. speakers, exceptional salespeople. Um, but it, it just is very draining at the end of the day. So it's also a question of your priorities. If your career is, is important to you and you, you like your career, maybe it's worth coming home and feeling beat. You know, a lot of people, that's, that's worth it. But if you don't feel good with that, um, like one suggestion I've heard for introverts who are in sales is try to get into sales where you're selling business to business. You know, where you're sitting down with like one representative of a big company telling them in detail about the product. And over the course of several weeks, they're going to decide whether they want to sign a contract with you. That's a much better sales job for an introvert than, say, like, you know, facing clients, you know, 100 people a day and trying to sell them on on something. So true. But you you know yourself. And what I find is, sadly, uh, we make these career decisions when we're younger and we may not... We may not know some of these issues. I, I you know, <laughs> yeah. I didn't know I was a high sensitive until uh, until about six years ago, 
And but for so that meant for 42 years of my life, I thought I was just crazy. Exactly. And you you feel that way. You Uh feel like you're crazy. You know, you feel like there's something wrong with you. And that was ultimately, I think, the biggest thing that this whole experiment did for me was just got me to accept who I am. And I remember there's a moment and for the extroverts listening, this will not sound like a moment at all. But for the introverts listening, this, this, you might connect with this. I was, um, I was invited to go to this, this great party. Um, a bunch of my friends were going, and there was, it was at this restaurant after hours. The restaurant, you know, they were closing their doors, a private party, and there's this, like, fancy chef who's going to make this special dinner. And, and, you know, I went for just a little bit. I had a glass of wine, and just as they were closing the doors to start the big private fancy party that I felt so cool to be invited to, I was like, I got to go. And I just made a decision right there. I was like, I don't want to spend the next four or five hours with loud music and everybody getting drunk and talking to strangers. Yeah. I have no need to do this. I'm just going to go home and work on my novel. <laughs> <laughs> and for me, that was a big moment, like just to willingly choose not to be the nerd who was being left out because nobody wanted me there, but to have gotten the invite and just realized like, no, I actually prefer to go have a quiet night at home. Mm. That was really a moment for me. You just, yeah, I came for cocktail hour, said hi. That's one of the rules that I use is I, and I, my wife has to pretty much force this, but I try to go to everything I can and leave when I, when I need to. Yeah, exactly. Because I, what I've noticed, if I don't go, it starts getting harder and harder to go. You know, it's, it's yeah. harder the next time to go because, oh, I should have – I start building up my own walls for myself. Hey, as and we wrap you up – your, your wife is more of the marathon runner. Yeah, she is a event. total – Is she good about leaving when you no, want to leave? Because that's no. always hard too. Sometimes I just go sit in the car and wait. <laughs> and some, then, I, then I start the car and then I pull it up front and then I just slowly start tapping like on the head. horn. Right. <laughs> and then she gets in and she's mad like, what is your deal? I don't know. Yeah, I've been through that. Yeah. We, we've always, because she's the marathon runner, we're always the last one to leave anything. I mean, I'll right. go do a speech for a thousand people and we will be the last people out the door. And it wasn't even my you know, location. Um, right, right. So as we wrap up, give us uh, the one thing. I always like to talk about the one thing that your biggest learning out of your experiment and uh, just your own journey with introversion and extroversion. Yeah, the biggest thing I learned for myself is that I have what I've, what I've nicknamed my basket, my basket of things. If I can fill up my basket with this, this specific list of things that I need, then I am good to go in a social situation. I will have lots of energy. And if I can't fill up my basket, my little checklist, then I'm going to be uh, dead the whole time. For me, and, and I think the basket's going to be different for every introvert, but for me personally, it's a few things. Like I need to finish my work before I go to the social event. If I can't finish my work, I'll be thinking about it the whole time. Huh. Like, oh, I'm behind on this, I'm behind on this, and that drains me. Um, I eat something before I go. It doesn't matter go. if there's going to be food at the event. I eat before I go so that I'm not hungry and I have more mental energy. Yeah. Um, and just a list of things, but probably the funniest one on there is I actually, like 20 minutes before I leave for a social event, I just crank up some really bad pop music. <laughs> <laughs> like really upbeat, like, yeah. you know, happy, dancey pop music. Right. And I just blast that for 20 minutes and it just gets my adrenaline going and I feel more energetic when I get to the event. So it's I just a... do this little short list of things. If I can do that before I walk out the door, I'm, I'm good to go. Almost like I'm an extrovert. I, I love can, that. No, yeah. I love that. I, I kind of do the same thing. And then I, then I feel weird when my kids are watching. Um, Andre, <laughs> we appreciate you, my friend. That is some great insight. And uh, thanks, for your, thanks for your time as well. Hey, thanks for having me, Matt. You bet. Go check out the website, roguepriest.net, roguepriest.net. You can also find some of his writings on Huffington Post. Just look up Andre Solo. We'll take a break, folks. Come back, wrap it up with a little Coach's Corner. This is the Matt Townsend Show. 
Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball! Welcome back, friends. You know what? Life's hard enough, right? And we can talk about the differences between men and women. We could talk about the differences between, you know, uh, your education levels, where you were born, how you were parented. But we could also get into just your tendency toward others, uh, other human beings. Do you tend to be an introvert, an extrovert? And again, they're just words. They're descriptions. But um, it does help to, I think, understand who you are as Dr. Uh, or as Andre Solo was talking to us about. There is a book out that we've, we've talked about on the show quite a bit um, over the years. Susan Cain wrote the book Quiet, The Power of Introverts in the World That Can't Stop Talking. And uh, about a third of the population will identify as an introvert. And again, you may not like this distinction, but if you don't like the distinction, it doesn't mean it's not real. So know that a third of the people you're interacting with are different from you in their need to be with people. And it doesn't mean they're snotty. It doesn't mean they're arrogant. It doesn't mean they're weird. It just means they like to have some alone time. So a few little bits of advice for all of us that came from the book, Susan Cain, that some of my favorite learnings from um, the, the book Quiet. And it's an interesting fact that they found that a lot of the, the students, the MBA programs, for example, at Harvard, they actually are looking for extroverts. The very intake process to draw people to Harvard, they're looking for people that are more extroverted. They, they, they tend to work better on teams. They tend to, um, you know, they're more willing to say what needs to be said in the meetings. But one of the problems they're running into is they get a room full of extroverts, but they don't get any introverts. And so they might be losing the benefits of the introvert. There are benefits to being an introvert, somebody that actually thinks before they speak, for example. Wouldn't that be an ideal thing to have in the room? Is it possible, Susan Cain posits in her book, Quiet, that some of our biggest problems in the world are created because people aren't thinking? They're just reacting. They're responding. And they're even being incentivized to move and to respond. So let's let's look at introversion not as a curse, but as a great, great gift. A couple of other uh, issues to kind of remember is that introversion can become a strength for you. It doesn't need to be your weakness. You just need to know your nature, stay true to your nature, and turn it into something you can do well. Uh, also, another key is whatever you are, whoever you are, you can you can learn both sides of it, You've, and you should learn to still be extroverted. Learn to spend your, your free time in a way that rejuvenates you. If it's if – it's, use your free time. If you need private, quiet time to be rejuvenated, use it or you will lose it. You'll exhaust yourself. Also, a really great point she makes in the book is that love is essential, okay? Loving a human being is an essential part of all of our humanity, but gregariousness is optional. You don't have to be the loudest. You don't have to be, uh, you know, the, the life of every party. You can still be loved and still be loving even if the noise is too much to handle. So everybody, all of us need to remember the differences of people aside, we need to feel loved. We need to know that um, 
that, that we're cared for. And let's start learning about our spouses. My wife, for example, is a marathon uh, socializer. I'm more of a sprinter. I need to pay more attention to make sure we're getting her out socially as much as she wants to. And she needs to pay attention to me and know that we didn't, we need to leave. You know, we also need some quiet time. Anyway, just a few tips from the coach. If you want more, go to matttownsend.com. We'll take a break. Come back and uh, another hour, folks. Stick with us.